edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Darnley and Croydon Health Services NHS Trust, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 50. And the case that we're looking at today is a rather sad one, as it involves a serious injury to someone that could have been avoided. We will be talking a fair amount about the negligence of certain NHS staff working within an accident and emergency department, and you will see that this is justified, but overall the facts of the case probably speak more to the mismanagement of A&E within the NHS and how staff can be overworked. Anyway, the patient in question was also the appellant in this case, Darnley, and he suffered a head injury back in 2010. His friend drove him to the A&E department at Mayday Hospital in Croydon, South London, where he registered at 26 minutes past 8 in the evening. Even though it was reported that this was a severe head injury and Darnley was feeling particularly unwell, he was told by the receptionist that it might be 4 or 5 hours before it would be possible to see a clinician and be treated. Understandably, Darnley was quite put out by this and replied to the receptionist that there was simply no way that he would be able to wait that long and instead he would likely collapse during that time. The receptionist only followed up by pointing out that if Darnley were to collapse, then that would would be treated as an emergency. At this point, it's probably worth taking a quick pause and thinking about what should have happened in this situation. As a lot of people know, and if you don't, then consider this as a public service broadcast, head injuries can be particularly severe, but it can be difficult to gauge just how bad things are without seeking medical attention. Therefore, Darnley should have been informed that he would be seen by a triage nurse within a much shorter period of time, generally half an hour. Instead, with the prospect of a long wait on his hands, Darnley left A&E only 19 minutes later and returned home to his mother's house. By half past nine, Darnley was severely unwell and an ambulance had to be called to the home. Now that he was able to get the treatment he needed, a CT scan showed that there was a large hematoma and so Darnley was transferred to another hospital where he underwent an emergency operation at 1am the following morning. The doctors did all they could but unfortunately Darnley suffered permanent brain damage and paralysis down the left hand side of his body. A legal case was brought against the NHS trust in tort law as it was alleged that the receptionist in the A&E department had been negligent in the information provided about waiting times in the case of head injuries. I have a tendency to do this any time we look at an action in tort, but as a reminder, in order to establish negligence, it has to be shown that there is a duty of care, there has been a breach of that duty of care, and that breach has caused the damage without being too remote. This case was dismissed in both the High Court and the Court of Appeal, as it was held that there was no such duty of care with respect to waiting times. There was no causal link between the actions of the receptionist and the injury suffered, and the damage was not within the scope of any such duty. Nevertheless, Darnley appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we picked the case up. Lord Lloyd-Jones was the justice who gave the only lead judgment as the Supreme Court decided to unanimously allow Darnley's appeal. Admittedly, I do sometimes ramp up the tension on the podcast by not revealing who won a case until the end, but here I think it is definitely worth having the result in mind as we explore how all of the elements of negligence that we sort of mentioned a little bit earlier were successfully established. 
First of all, the duty itself can be very difficult to establish, as we've seen in a great number of cases over the years. The courts are often very concerned about imposing a duty of care on one person with respect to another, as that can represent a significant burden with significant consequences attached as well. In this situation, we know that doctors have a duty of care towards their patients, but what about receptionists? Certainly any duty of care will not be as extensive as that of a doctor, but that is not to say that one doesn't exist at all. In fact, given the context, it is fairly similar in nature to what one would expect from a doctor, in that it comprises a duty to take reasonable care not to cause physical injury to a patient. To be more precise, we can say that this extends to also mean that there is a duty to take reasonable care so as not to provide misleading information to a patient that may foreseeably cause that person an injury. The fact that this was a non-medical member of staff also makes no difference because the decision to place non-medical staff on reception was taken by the NHS Trust and doesn't make any difference to the appellant's claim as Darnley still has a right to expect accurate information from whoever the staff may be. Another legitimate concern about establishing a duty of care in this context is related to what in law is vaguely called policy. What this means in reality is that the courts look at broader political reasons for either allowing or not allowing a duty of care. Here the worries were twofold. Firstly that this case may well open the floodgates to many others and therefore end up costing the NHS a great deal of money. And secondly, that in order to prevent such cases, hospitals would begin to adopt defensive practices that would lead to a less efficient service overall. Neither of these arguments were convincing to the Supreme Court, who felt that they were exaggerated concerns and that in any case courts would also have to factor in the difficult and stressful conditions within which A&E departments operate. So that establishes the duty of care, and we know that the relationship begins at 26 minutes past 8 when Darnley checks in at the reception, but now we need to work out if and how there has been a breach of this duty of care. Well, the standard is an objective one, so this means that we need to compare the actions of the receptionist in this case with the actions of a reasonable receptionist in the same position. Note here that while in tort law we often talk about the reasonable person, in this case we instead consider a reasonable receptionist who has broadly similar training and information at their fingertips. The comparison is fairly straightforward here as the information given to Darnley was demonstrably false and not in line with standard procedure, so there had clearly been a breach of the duty of care. The final question then was whether that breach had caused damage to the claimant without being too remote. The central factor worth examining is the fact that Darnley decided to leave the hospital after 19 minutes. This is important because if he was going to leave anyway, then it could not be said that it was the actions of the receptionist that caused the injury. Instead, it's the actions of Darnley himself that would be said to have broken the chain of causation, and so the NHS Trust would not be liable. At this stage, we look to the findings of the trial judge in the original case, who noted that if Darnley had been given the correct information and told that the wait would only be 30 minutes instead of 4-5 to five hours, then he would have waited instead of leaving. Alternatively, the facts of the case also tell us that if he had collapsed at the hospital at 9.30 instead of at his mother's house, 
then he could have undergone surgery much sooner and in all likelihood made a full recovery. In the end then the chain of causation between the breach of duty by the receptionist and the injury suffered by Darnley remained intact and so the appeal was successful. When it comes to evaluating this case it is generally useful to follow the same structure that we have already been using for tort law throughout this episode already. Thus we can begin by thinking about whether it was fair to impose a duty of care in this situation. I think the court got this one just about right as while we have to be careful not to equate the duty of a receptionist with that of a doctor, it is also necessary to acknowledge that there is some responsibility associated with that position. It may seem something of a leap to move from a broad duty not to cause physical harm or injury to a specific duty to not misinform the patient, but we've seen in this case how the two are connected, especially with head injuries where time is very much of the essence. Meanwhile the floodgates argument is of limited application here because while it is important that the NHS does not become overexposed in terms of its liability, the duty of care is strictly limited to the role that a receptionist is expected to occupy. So for example, while information about the correct waiting period is within that remit, if the medical staff were waylaid, then this would not be the fault of the receptionist who would have fulfilled her duty in that situation. Furthermore, as Lord Lloyd-Jones mentions, judges are by no means unaware of the strain placed on A&E departments up and down the country so it will only be in the most egregious cases of negligence that liability will arise. Moving on, the fact that there was a breach of duty is probably the easiest thing to agree on in this case. Interestingly, or perhaps worryingly, there were two receptionists on duty that evening, and no one ever worked out which receptionist made the mistake, but it is clear that the advice given was wrong. Finally, the unbroken chain of causation is probably where most people might begin to disagree. Mr Darnley was most likely not in his right mind after such a severe injury, but leaving the hospital was clearly the wrong course of action and he did attend with a friend who perhaps should have encouraged him to stay. Note that this is not to blame or attribute responsibility to Darnley or his companion but only to suggest that it is not unreasonable to think that leaving the hospital, even with the wrong advice on waiting times, broke the chain of causation. On the other hand, the reasoning given in the original claim itself is also fair. If you were hurt and thought you might not see a doctor until after midnight, then it is not inconceivable that you might just decide to go home, get some rest and then try again in the morning. Rationally, it's not the right thing to do, but it is by no means inconceivable that this is a reasonable response in the circumstances. Overall then, this is probably a good decision on balance. Like most judges, I am often sceptical of any extension to the duty of care because there is a tendency to open a Pandora's box of unexpected consequences that are not foreseen in the original case. Here, however, there are not only strict limitations established by the justices, but the execution of this duty would be very simple. Of course receptionists should continue to be well trained but as an NHS spokesperson noted after the decision, quote, trusts need to review their practices straight away to ensure that visitors to A and E are provided with accurate and not misleading information about waiting times. That might entail, as the court suggested, the use of leaflets or notices, end quote. 
Well, when avoiding legal liability is as simple as putting up a sign, there really is no excuse for the mistakes made in respect of Mr Darnley to ever be repeated. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you do want to help out the podcast, then it really means a lot when people leave a review on iTunes. Um, I'll be back with another case next week. But for now, bye.